0: The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we're looking at verses 14 through 16 once again. This morning we wrap up really the sermon from last week, speaking about our great high priest, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Let's now give our full attention as God Himself speaks to us in His holy, infallible, perfect, and inspired word. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. This concludes the reading of God's holy, and inspired word. Let's go once again uh, to his throne of grace and ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would illumine this text of scripture to us that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would make it effectual to us, to our hearts, that we would hear, that we would receive, that it would come in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may draw near to Christ in faith, and hope, in love, and adoration for him. Transform us, change us, work powerfully now by your Spirit, we pray, for Christ's sake and in, and in his name. Amen. I'm picking up from last week where we were considering the greatness of our high priest. What makes him so great and why are we able to then draw near to him rather than withdraw from him? Because withdrawing is what is leading to apostasy, which is something that the author of Hebrews is concerned about with his hearers. And last time we saw two of the three points that I wanted to look at. First, access, that Christ has given us access to his throne because he has passed through the heavens. He has gone to the heaven of heavens. He is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, so we have full access to him, and we can come to him and approach him. Second, we are considering his afflictions. Why are we able to draw near to Him? Why can we draw near to Him with confidence? Because our Lord Jesus Christ was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And that is why we have encouragement to draw near to Him. He's sympathetic. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to experience weakness, troubles, and trials. We're not going to be met with scolding. We're not going to be... Met with, oh, you again? Rather, we're going to be met with sympathy, understanding, mercy. We can draw near to somebody like that. The third point we're going to consider today is acceptance. This throne of grace, acceptance. Before we get to that point, I want to wrap up the second point with regards to his afflictions and talk about in what sense was he tempted like we are yet without sin. Because you may not really be convinced that Jesus is sympathetic. Now, you you read it in God's Word. It's right there in Hebrews 4. And you're not one to argue with God's Word. But you may not really be convinced or you may wonder just how sympathetic is He? I have a lot of sin, but Jesus has no sin. I am weak, but He is holy and strong. I fall into sin. Jesus never did that. I am filled with shame over my sin. Jesus never had shame over any sin He committed. And furthermore, in what way can he be tempted like, like us when he has no sin? Is he really sympathetic towards me as a sinner? As a sinner? Yeah, maybe as an innocent sufferer when something happens to me that wasn't my fault. But what about when I fall into sin? Is he really sympathetic towards me then? So I want to I finish this up by answering these questions. So. How was Jesus tempted in every way as we are? That's the question I want to ask right now. How was Jesus tempted in every way as we are? Well, first, we need to simply define the word tempt. They're from Hebrews 4. Tempted. What does that mean? Well, what it means is to be put on trial. It is a trying set of circumstances that may either... Result in a good outcome or a bad outcome. It's providential pressure, difficulty, suffering that comes in a sin-cursed world. And this is uh, actually what we do when we exercise. When we exercise, we are creating a trial. Uh, That's really all exercise is, creating a trial. A physically difficult set of circumstances. And why on earth would we do that to ourselves? Well, it's actually to get healthier, stronger, more fit. So not all trying is bad because it can be a good thing. That results in a good outcome. However, some trying circumstances are what we call bad. These are things like natural disasters, earthquakes. Volcanoes, floods, tornadoes, uh, difficult circumstances such as your house burning down, becoming ill, going bankrupt, having a heart attack, getting cancer, having someone mistreat you. These are trials that happen in this sin-cursed world. It's the painful afflictions that are part of the curse that was brought about because of Adam's fall. Into sin. And no believer is immune from any of these things. Even death, every single one of us, unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes back first, is going to face death, which is called an enemy by God, which Christ has defeated. And undergoing these sufferings and afflictions is what constitutes temptations, trials. Difficulties that weigh on us. And this is what Christ faced. Maybe not every single thing in detail that we faced, but the general broad spectrum of them, He did. Now, there are two ways in which Jesus' temptations were different from ours as it pertains to sin. First, all of Jesus' temptations were from without all trying circumstances came to him from the outside our temptations come from both outside and from within we undergo difficulty trying circumstances that press in on us from without someone speaks evil of us and violates the ninth commandment gossips about us mars our reputation uh, our kids try our patience by forgetting uh, the rules about no drinks in the living room and they stain the carpet or the sofa. Uh, the waitress at the restaurant was rude to us or forgets to take our order for 30 minutes. No first world problems. Uh, these are trying circumstances that happen from without. But we also have tempt- temptations that happen from within. Uh, we have a proud, and lustful heart uh, we have proud and lustful thoughts that flow from the heart even when no one is around nothing bad can be happening to us and this temptation can rise from within uh, the bible says we are inventors of evil that all evil comes from the heart of man well with christ there was no inward sinful temptation since he had no sin so when the Bible says here that he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, that's part of what it means for his temptations to be without sin, not coming from any sort of sin within. The, the second way in which Jesus' temptation were different from ours is that they did not result in sin. So also included in yet without sin is that Jesus did not actually sin. There was no Sin on his part. His temptations did not result in sin. When we are pressed and tried, we almost immediately give in to sin. The sin that is present in our heart gets squeezed out. The outward trials are like a hand squeezing a ketchup bottle. This is when somebody squeezes a ketchup bottle and ketchup comes out. Why did ketchup come out of the ketchup bottle? Because it was filled with ketchup, right? Somebody squeezed it and ketchup came out. So, why does sin come out when we get squeezed? Because there's sin in our heart. It's not necessarily because we were squeezed. That's what a trial is. It's like having the heart squeezed. But the reason why sin came out is because sin was in the heart. Just as. Ketchup comes out of a ketchup bottle because it's filled with ketchup. Well, Jesus was squeezed more severely than we will ever know, but no sin came out of him because there was no sin in him. Typically, when we sin, uh, we blame the squeezing, don't we? Well, the reason I got frustrated, the reason I responded in anger um, it's because I got squeezed. If people would just stop squeezing me, I wouldn't do this, right? No, it's because there's sin in our heart. It's, it, it's reflective of our heart. But when Jesus got squeezed, no sin came out. Now the question is, could He sin? Could Jesus have sinned? He had a human nature like Adam. Jesus was even called an Adam. Adam's human nature originally was one that was innocent and not corrupt. Created without sin or defilement. But as we know, Adam was able to sin. He had a human nature that could become corrupt. And Jesus had this same human nature as Adam in his innocence before falling into sin. So does that mean that Jesus was then able to sin? Now, no orthodox person, that is no non-heretical person, is going to argue over or not whether or not Jesus actually sinned. Uh, All orthodox agree that he did not sin. But as far as whether or not he could sin, because he did have that same human nature that Adam had in his innocence, I think the best answer is that Jesus had the human nature that could fall into sin, that could become corrupt, because it was not a glorified human body like the one we will have in heaven, which doesn't even have the possibility of sinning. Jesus had the human nature that Adam had in his innocence, which had the possibility of becoming corrupt. However, it was impossible for the Son of God to sin because He is God. So while He had the human equipment, as it were, to sin, this body of innocence like Adam that could become corrupt, His divine nature made it impossible for that to happen. And His one person with the two distinct natures inseparably united, ultimately. He could not sin. He still needed to persevere in obedience under intense trial and testing in his humanity. But the fact that he was God guaranteed that he could not sin, that he would persevere perfectly. But he did face real and true temptation in his humanity. So then, in what way was his temptations like ours? We just discussed in what ways they are not like ours. In what way, then, are they like ours? Well, here are some ways in which he was tempted like us. And even more so. uh, First, he was tempted by Satan while he was at his weakest. When Christ was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil... In order to fulfill that covenant of works with the first Adam, or that that was given to the first Adam, that the first Adam failed to accomplish, Christ was at his weakest. He was at his weakest in that he was not in a lush garden, but all alone in an uninhabitable wilderness. The opposite of a garden. Can any of you imagine going out in the backcountry, going out in the wilderness without your pack, or without your gear? For, for those of us that do. Or just, you can even imagine, it's like, hey, just, just go out in this wilderness. Um, don't bring anything with you. Don't bring any food. And that's what Jesus did for 40 days. He didn't have anything to eat for 40 days. Now, how many of us have even gone 40 hours without eating? And so, if there was ever a time that one would want to eat, it would be then. And I come back from working out at, at the gym and I spoil my dinner because there's a bag of chips on the, the counter. I can't even resist at times. So imagine being that hungry. But it was at this time that. Satan came and tempted Jesus with the very thing he tempted the first Adam to eat. Jesus was at his absolute weakest, humanly speaking, when he was tempted in this way. Uh, we can give in so quickly and often to temptation, but the temptation is not as bad after not eating for a day as it is for not eating after 40 days. That's a lot of pressure jesus was intensely tempted in many ways but did not give in so he bore that full weight of the temptation which has a cumulative effect difference between not eating for one day and then giving in versus not eating for 40 days that has a cumulative effect and that's applied really to other areas of his life also jesus was tempted by the twisting of the word of god by satan If you ever had somebody try to deceive you by twisting God's word for their advantage, not talking about a disagreement, its like, well, I disagree with your interpretation, so you you must be wrong because I'm always right, but doing it with an evil intention to distort it. Well, Jesus knows what that's like and is sympathetic towards you. And then Satan offered Jesus all the glory of the kingdoms of the world. But something that truly was in his power because that was handed over to him when Adam and Eve fell into sin. That was part of the curse. You bow down to the word of the Satan. Guess who has power over you now? And this is why Jesus says in John 12, he's the prince of the world. This is why 2 Corinthians 4 says he's the God of this world. This is why 1 John 5 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He had this power. And Satan says, I I will give this to you. All you have to do is just bow to me and worship me. Now this is something that the Father promised to the Son in the covenant of redemption before the world began. Kingdom. And we see that in Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. I have set my king on my holy hill. But how would Christ get that kingdom? It would have to come through suffering. It would have to come through the cross. It would have to come not only through physical death, but having the wrath of God poured out on him. And Satan says, I have an easier way for you. All of this, I can give to you. Apart from the cross, all you have to do is just say the word. Just acknowledge me. Have you ever faced a situation where you wanted to take the easy way out? Where something was much more easier path rather than the hard path of the cross? Satan knows what that's like. Or Christ knows what that's, excuse me. Christ knows what that's like. He was tempted by Satan in that way, when he was at his absolute weakness. Second, he was despised and rejected by men. I think we underestimate this difficulty. Men rejected him. Men hid their faces from him. Men treated him as an outcast. This is especially the case during his public ministry. And I, one of the things, if we, if we really think about it, one of the, the great fears we have is being treated as an outcast, is being judged as evil, is being rejected by men, is facing shame before people. That is one of the things that we can fear the most. Sometimes we really underestimate that. And this is something that was a hardship for Jesus. He was rejected and disrespected. Just think about how much we appreciate a community, whether church or family, where we have meaningful relationships and friendships. Well, Scripture says at one point that not even his own family was believing in him. They thought he had lost his mind. People were calling him demon-possessed. They said he had a demon. They were thinking he's a crazy person. Have you ever had your motives judged? as evil and impure when you're simply just trying to help people. That's what Jesus was going through. In reality, He suffered greatly in His humanity because of this rejection, because of this reproach. And we actually read His words regarding this in the Psalms. One of the things that's really important to keep in mind when you read the Psalms, it's not just about you. It's also, and even primarily about Christ. The Psalms are the words of Christ spoken by the Spirit of Christ through David or wh- whoever the human author was. For example, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They have pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my clothing. Psalm 22. Who, who's saying that? Yeah, David, the human author, but it's the spirit of Christ predicting his sufferings. Predicting the things he would say out of great turmoil of the soul, expressing them to God, the Father. And so we read him say things like Psalm 6920. This is Jesus. Reproaches have broken my heart, so I am in despair. Jesus' heart was broken by reproach of others. He was reproached, he was shamed, his name was slandered, he was publicly derided as having a demon. He had religious people, Pharisees, listen carefully to Jesus' teaching in words, not to humbly understand his teaching and learn, but in order to find fault, in order to accuse him. And then they tried to get others against him spreading false witness about him slander and they did end up succeeding in getting the entire crowd against him as they all reproached him as evil he stood there alone and listened to the crowd shout crucify him crucify him do away with him some of the same people he ministered to and even healed reproach broke his heart. We tend to think about the physical aspect of the cross, but this is some of the suffering of which the Psalms speak often. Have you ever had your heart broken? Have you ever been reproached, rejected, despised, misunderstood, slandered? Jesus knows what that's like. He is able to sympathize with you. Third, he was abandoned by his closest friends. At the Last Supper, he mentioned positively how his disciples were with him in his trials. But then, in a very short while, he had to break the news to him that they were all going to abandon him. Jesus would be arrested, which is a trial in of itself, all a trial all on its own, and left all alone, and his disciples would abandon him. But the greatest heartache was to have a close friend turn on him and betray him. The Spirit of Christ speaks of this in Psalm fifty five, where it says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I can bear it. It is not an adversary who deals instantly insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. And the Spirit of Jesus also says in Psalm 41 9, even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is Jesus speaking about his sufferings, about the things that really weighed on him, these temptations? Have you ever been betrayed by a close friend? Somebody that should have been with you, a loved one? Have you ever had somebody turn their back on you and turn on you when they should have been there by your side? Have you ever been abandoned by loved ones or felt completely alone? Jesus knows exactly what that is like. He was betrayed by one of his closest disciples, uh, abandoned by the, the rest of them, brought to trial and falsely accused with no one to come to his defense as he had the whole crowd turned against him while he stood there alone showing how fickle people are that should have stood by his side. As he says in Psalm 69, 20, I looked for pity, but there was none and for comforters, but I found none. In his darkest hour, in his most difficult trial, no one stood with him. Fourth, God abandoned him. Uh, every man had utterly abandoned him, which is really bad. But this happened to the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, Paul said, all have turned aside to, uh, uh, from me. But, he says, God was with me. But the moment that Jesus was on the cross bearing the wrath of God, he couldn't say that. Rather, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was utterly abandoned by everybody. And then when the wrath of God was poured out against him, The Father not only turned His face away from Christ, He also set His face against Him as He bore the wrath of God in our place, standing condemned, utterly alone. Everybody against Him. Everybody against Him. Even God, because He was standing in our place, condemned. And this is something that we who believe will never know. In this way, his temptations and trials are different in that they're much worse. But this is what caused him to utter before going to the cross, now is my soul troubled. And all the temptations before, yes, they troubled him. But this right here, this is the steep. Now my soul is troubled. And this caused him even to sweat blood, which is an actual medical condition. I looked it up. It's an actual medical condition. The government uh, websites that I looked up said that there's one known case in the modern period, a 72-year-old 70, man who was really stressed. Well, Jesus was so stressed because he was about ready to face the wrath of God that he sweat drips, uh, drops of blood. You see, Jesus understood what it meant to face the wrath of God. Uh, Today, in our, especially in our society, people want to suppress that. They want to ignore that. They want to reject that. They even want to create a society that basically says there's no condemnation for my sin. You want to understand the way our society is going, uh, what our society is doing right now with with, what the so-called wokeness. All it is is saying we want affirmation that there's no condemnation or judgment for our sin. People want to get that out of their head. They don't want to believe it. They want to feel safe in their sin. Jesus knew what it meant to face the wrath of God. And He had the proper response. Let this cup pass for me. And then sweating drops of blood. And He could have as he said, called out to his father and his father would have sent a whole bunch of angels to deliver him. But he didn't. He set his face like flint to the cross and bore the wrath of God for us that we would be delivered forever from the wrath of God. He did not give in to temptation. The most difficult temptation there is. That you and I would have eternal life. Fifth, he knew the shame that comes with sin. He knew the shame that comes with sin. This might be the hang-up we have in believing that Jesus can be truly sympathetic. Because we say, I have fallen into sin. I feel an intense amount of shame because of my sin. But Jesus never gave in to sin. He was always victorious. Even under the most intense temptation that you can imagine. How can He possibly understand what it's like to feel the shame of sin? Well, while Jesus never fell into sin, He bore all the shame that comes from our sin. As he was bearing our sin, he stood before the Sanhedrin all alone to be, in his case, falsely accused. But he was silent. He offered no defense, even though he could have. Why did he not offer defense? Why did he keep his mouth shut? I mean, the minute anyone insinuates anything bad about us, we open our mouths for two hours to talk about why we're so righteous. But Jesus, who is truly righteous, sat there and kept His mouth shut. Well, it's because He was standing in our place condemned as a sinner. Because Romans 3.20 says that the law shuts the mouth of every sinner. And so Jesus, standing in our place, kept His mouth shut, offered no defense because He was bearing our sin. We have no defense for our sin. But Jesus, standing in our place, It offer no defense, no excuse. And then Jesus is stripped down naked and exposed. What's the first thing Adam and Eve felt when they sinned? They knew their nakedness. They knew they were naked. They felt exposed. Well, Jesus was exposed while He was on the cross, carrying our shame, stripped down naked. His robe is stripped off of him, and he is even mocked, spit upon, and judged by others. That is part of him taking our place, not only dying and facing the wrath of God, but facing our shame, being shamed. That's what we deserve. We deserve to be shamed. We deserve to be mocked. We deserve to be judged before all. Jesus is facing that for us. Even though he had no sin of his own over which to feel ashamed, yet he felt the shame of sin, of our sin, in ways that we will never know. Uh, We tend to hide our sin and shame from others. Jesus could not as he was exposed to shame both before man and God in the most shameful ways you can imagine. And so He says to us, I know the shame of your sin because I bore it. And I want to cover you. I don't want you to experience that same shame. You have shame from your sin. I was shamed for your sin. And I will cover you from it. And we see that even in the prodigal son. That that prodigal son who's, who's out in the distance Humbles himself and comes back, and he's going to face shame before everybody. The whole town's going to talk about him. The father could—he could—he imagined that the father's going to stand there and kind of fold his arms, shake his head, and go, "Oh, so you're back now? Is that the way you view God when you sin? That God's going to treat you like that? Oh, you again?" Hey, you should be ashamed of yourself. Look at what you did. I'm here to scold you. Well, how did the father respond? He ran. He ran in order to... While his son was still far ways off, he ran in order to cover his son's shame. And uh, Father running in that day, was itself shameful. He became the object of shame and scorn, that his son who had truly repented may forever have his shame covered. This is what Christ has done for us. I will take your shame for you, that you may be forever covered. And on the day of, of judgment, it's going to be an open acknowledgement that you are righteous in my sight. Well done, good and faithful servant. All your sin. Is going to be covered it won't be imputed to you and you're going to be publicly honored before all that is what christ has done for us and this brings us to the third and final reason we can come to jesus with great confidence and that is acceptance verse 16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time need. So what the Holy Spirit has been doing in these few verses is removing every excuse for us to come. Like he wants us to come and so he argues for us to come. Any argument for not coming to his throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in time of need when we've blown it, when we've sinned is not going to come from him. It's not going to say don't don't come. Any argument that says don't come, comes from Satan or our sinful, deceitful hearts. But when God argues with us through His Word, He argues with us to come. Here's the reasons why you need to come. Here's why, my child, you must come. He bids us to come. The Holy Spirit has been removing every excuse for us. We say, God is too holy and unrelatable and unreachable. He will not hear me. The Holy Spirit says, Jesus has passed through the heavens. He has passed through the heavens into the heaven of heaven, so we have access to his throne. He has taken care of any barrier so we can come. We say, well, well, but but I'm too weak. It's sinful. I, I've blown it. Jesus is not going to understand. Ah. Uh, the Holy Spirit says, you have a sympathetic high priest. He will sympathize with you. And then we say, but I'm not going to get grace. I mean, how many times have I come? How many times have I blown it? I mean, this is, this is the throne of God we're talking about. Holy, majestic. He's a great king. Angels cover their faces before Him. How can I possibly come to this throne? What kind of throne is it? Throne of grace. Grace is God's free favor given to sinners who have earned the opposite. His demerited favor. What that means, favor? acceptance. It is a throne of acceptance. You will find acceptance when you come to Him. God in His grace bids poor, weak sinners to come find mercy. When do we need mercy? When we've blown it. Not giving us what we deserve. Not treating us as our sins deserve. That is what you will find. What will you find as a sinner? You will find his favor. You say, but I haven't earned his favor. Well, this is a throne of grace. Free favor, free acceptance. I haven't merited it. This is not a throne of merit. This is a throne of mercy. And this is said to be in time of need. That is is what fits the occasion. Uh, that which is fitting according to what we need in the moment. Uh, when you go to the doctor, he may not always give you what you need. he may give you the wrong treatment he may give you the wrong medicine. he does not always know how to help. And this is some reason this is part of the reason why sometimes we don't go to the doctor. I, I have often said, should we take you know should we go to the doctor and my first thought is, They're just going to charge me $200 to say there's nothing we can do for you. Sometimes the doctor can't help. Maybe this is why some of us do not come to the throne of grace in our need. Is God really going to help me? I've sinned this way before and asked him to help, but then I sinned in this way again, and it doesn't seem to be working. I've already asked for his help, and it hasn't worked. I sin again in this way. Oh, but we don't just come once. The issue is not He didn't help us. The issue is we need to keep coming time and time and time again. The issue is we don't come enough. The issue is we don't stay long enough. So it is indeed just what the doctor ordered. Just what the divine doctor ordered when we come to Him. He knows what we need better than than we do. And so the main thing that God is saying to us here in His Word is come. Don't withdraw. Stop hiding. Don't be like Adam and Eve who hid when My presence came. Don't be ashamed to come because of your sin and weakness. Come to Me. I will give you all that you need without money, and without price, every time I give to all liberally, without reproach to all who ask, you do not need to worry about coming too often or overextending your stay. I bid you to come, my child. You are my child. You are always welcome. I will help you. You will not be met with reproach, but with sympathy, mercy, grace, This is a throne of acceptance for you always. So come, never stay away. And this is why, beloved, the high priest we have is truly great beyond measure. May we always come to the throne of grace to receive mercy. In grace in time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that You would indeed help us to come. Give us the grace that we need even now, Father. We have sinned. Give us grace. Give us assurance of Your love. Give us mercy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.